book of Samuel, like the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, points to Jesus. It paves the way for Jesus. We know this because Jesus himself said so. In John chapter 5, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness to me. Now Samuel is scripture and so therefore Samuel must bear witness to Jesus. The only real question is how? It's scripture. Jesus says all scripture bears witness to him, so Samuel must bear witness to Jesus. We find the same kind of thing in Luke 24. In Luke 24, Jesus leads a Bible study of sorts with the disciples who had traveled to Emmaus. And Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to be a part of that Bible study? Hopefully these sermons on Samuel will be something like that Bible study. Samuel is one of the prophetic books because it's written by prophets. That's how the Jews classified the book. Jesus says, all the prophets concern me. That's how Luke describes this Bible study that Jesus does. So therefore Luke must, I'm sorry, Samuel must be about Jesus. If we read Samuel correctly, or to put it another way, if we read this scripture the way Jesus would read it, we will find Jesus on every page. He will jump out of every page of this book. We will find him there. We will find Jesus in every story in the book of Samuel. There are a lot of ways Samuel points us to Jesus. Here's one of them, and I think this is really crucial since we're here in the early chapters. We need to see this. The pattern of the early chapters of Samuel are matched by the early chapters of Luke's gospel. Samuel shapes Luke. Story has shaped story. The story Samuel tells shapes the story that Luke Tells. When Samuel tells us the story in these early chapters, the story he's telling, that shapes the way Luke tells the story of Jesus' early life. Or to put it another way, maybe more accurate, God shaped and crafted history in such a way that the events recorded early in Samuel's narrative would establish a pattern that Jesus would later fulfill in the events that take place in his early life as recorded by Luke. You see that? God is behind all of this. It's not just that uh, the, the two writers correspond. It's that the events themselves, as God orchestrated all of history, there are these correspondences. And so Luke is presenting Jesus to us as a new Samuel. If you want to understand Jesus, you need to understand Samuel. Jesus is a second Samuel, a greater Samuel. He is the one that Samuel's life points us to. This is what is sometimes called typology. Samuel is a type of the one to come. He is a type of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. And so consider some of the correspondences, the way we move from type to fulfillment. There's a correspondence, but also an escalation. Consider some of these correspondences. Hannah is barren, but Eli tells her she will have a son, and then she does. Likewise, Mary is a virgin, but Gabriel tells her she will have a son, and then she does. 
Mary is a new Hannah, and there's no question Mary saw herself this way because Mary's song very obviously draws from Hannah's song. These two women correspond to one another, and when Mary went to write her song, she drew from Hannah's song. It sounds a lot like Hannah's song. So think about this. When Hannah and Mary find they are with child, what do they do? They break out in a new song because they know God is doing something new. And these songs they sing have the same themes. They both rejoice in the Lord. They both proclaim the Lord's holiness and uniqueness and the Lord's salvation. Most especially, they both describe a great reversal that God will bring about in history through his promised king, through his anointed one. Further, Mary is described as the highly favored one. Hannah's name means favor. Mary is highly Hannah. She's highly favored. Of course, if Hannah and Mary correspond, then their sons must have correspondences as well. Mary knew that her son would be a greater Samuel, that her son would be a ruler like Samuel, and a deliverer like Samuel, and a holy warrior like Samuel, and a priest like Samuel, and a judge like Samuel. Just as Samuel was rejected by the people of Israel, we'll see that in a bit when we get there, so Jesus too would be rejected by the people of Israel. Just as Samuel presided over a transition in Israel's history, ending one age and inaugurating another age in Israel's history, so it will be with Jesus. When Jesus comes, he brings the old covenant to an end and he inaugurates the new covenant. So just as Samuel oversees a transition in Israel's history, Jesus oversees the ultimate transition in Israel's history. Just as Samuel prophesied the end of the tabernacle, so Jesus prophesied the end of the temple. Samuel was a lifetime Nazarite, Jesus took a Nazarite vow before going to the cross when he said he would not drink again of the fruit of the vine. That's his Nazarite vow. And so as Nazarites both fought great battles and won great victories on behalf of God's people. If there were any question at all about this, about the link between Samuel and Jesus, Luke has made it explicit Samuel's boyhood took place in the tabernacle, and so, G- so Luke tells us a story of Jesus going to the temple. Samuel was an apprentice to Eli, but he far outshined his master in the same way. Jesus far outshined the teachers in the temple. And then to clinch it, in Luke 2.52, we have a virtual quotation from 1 Samuel 2.26. The words that Samuel, the book of Samuel, uses to describe Samuel growing up are now applied to Jesus as he is growing up. As it was with Samuel, so it was with Jesus. He grew in stature and favor with God and man. That clinches it. There can be no question of their correspondence, of this connection. Now, that is the big picture of what is happening here. But we also need to dig into the details because there's so much here for us to understand, so much we need to see. Remember, this story takes place at a time in history when Israel is in crisis. There is a political crisis, and even deeper than that, there is a liturgical crisis. And of course, both of those are connected to a crisis in leadership. We know from the book of Judges at this time in history, there was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They really did have a king. Yahweh was their king, but they had rejected Yahweh's kingship. And so there was this great crisis. Everybody's doing what is right in his own eyes. 
Many of the priests who should lead the people to God are doing just the opposite. They're leading people away from God. In fact, this chapter deals in depth with the depravity of Eli and especially his sons who minister at the tabernacle in Shiloh. Think about the flow of the story. We've just heard about Elkanah and his family. And no, they're not perfect. They're not a perfect family, but they are a pious family. They pray and worship faithfully and regularly. Elkanah gets his family down to Shiloh to offer sacrifice before the Ark of the Covenant once every year. Uh, Hannah prays for a son. She pours herself out in prayer. Of course, once she has a son, she's made a vow that this son would be a Nazarite. And so he's going to be left at the tabernacle when he gets three years of age to do the Lord's work there. We've just seen all of that in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Elkanah's family is a godly family, and especially his wife Hannah is a godly woman. That stands in sharp contrast with Eli and his family, Eli and his sons, who are not godly, they are ungodly. In verse 11, Elkanah and his family have just returned home from worshiping at Shiloh. They have left young Samuel there, and it says he served the Lord at the tabernacle. He's serving the Lord at the tabernacle in accord with his mother's vow that he would be a Nazarite. Verse 12 then begins to tell us the story of Eli's sons. It tells us the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. So unlike Elkanah and his family who know the Lord, the sons of Eli do not know the Lord. The word corrupt there could also be translated as wicked or as worthless. Literally, they are sons of Belial. Belial, of course, eventually becomes another name for Satan. They're sons of Satan. They're sons of wickedness. And and calling them sons of wickedness really implicates Eli in the sins of his sons. He may not have been as bad as they were, but he shared in their corruption. He did not put a halt to their corruption. Eli's sons are sons of wickedness. He has fathered them in this wickedness. And then we get a description of their wickedness. And this, there's a great deal of evidence presented here to show that they did not know the Lord, that they were in rebellion against him. They would steal from the people who came to worship. <clears throat> a servant of the priest would come and stick a fork in the pan or the pot or the kettle or the cauldron. He'd stick a big old fork in there and he would take meat that should have been for the worshiper's family. So people would take their families to the tabernacle for worship. That includes a a sacrificial meal, a sacramental meal in the presence of God. And the priest with Hophni and Phinehas would send their servant out to take the meat out of the pot before the family could eat it. The text tells us this was their custom or their practice. Imagine priests coming along and stealing your barbecue before you get to eat it. Okay, that's a terrible thing. It's not good at all. But it gets worse. Verse 15 tells us not only would they steal from the worshipers, they would steal from God as well. There was a portion of the sacrifices reserved for the priest, but they were not content with that. The fat portion of the offering, what was considered the best portion, was reserved for God, but Hophni and Phinehas took that for themselves as well, even threatening to take it by force if the worshiper objected. And so verse 17 summarizes, says these young men, Hophni and Phinehas, sinned greatly. They despised the offering of the Lord. They corrupted Israel right at its heart in the liturgy. 
which is what Satan always does. Satan always attacks God's people in the sanctuary. Skip down then to verse 22. We find they sin sexually as well, turning the tabernacle into a brothel. There were women who served at the tabernacle. This was something that you find in the Torah. We read about these women in Exodus chapter 38. We today might call them deaconesses. They were servant women who ministered at the tabernacle. They did not have a public or liturgical role, the priests, the way the priests did. But they would serve the women who came on their own to the tabernacle, who came seeking counsel or who came to worship Hophni and Phinehas sin with these women. You need to consider just how satanic this whole picture is, just how satanic Hophni and Phinehas were. The, the, the story told in Genesis 3 of the fall of Adam and his wife is really being retold here with Hophni and Phinehas in the place of Satan. This goes straight back to Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? Satan attacks a woman in the sanctuary. He attacks a woman in the sanctuary. Hophni and Phinehas are misusing the women in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. Further, Satan encouraged Adam and Eve to steal food that belonged from God. Instead of being content with the food God gave them from the tree of life, Satan encouraged them to steal food that God had reserved, that God had prohibited. The, 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 the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the same way, Hophni and Phinehas are stealing food from God. This is Genesis 3 all over again. Satan is corrupting humanity in the sanctuary. Satan is corrupting humanity through corrupting our worship. Worship is right at the center of life. Everything else flows out of worship. If we get what happens in the sanctuary wrong, it's going it's to pollute everything downstream from that. That is what's happening here. It gets even worse. Eli knows that his sons are doing this. He knows what his sons are like. Well, actually, he hears about it from someone else, so he's not really that involved in his son's lives the way a father should be. He hears about this. He hears about what they're doing, and he goes to rebuke his sons in verses 23 to 25. But Hophni and Phinehas do not listen to their father. God gave them over to their sin. God was determined to kill them and so Eli's weak rebuke does not accomplish anything it's important to note here too that Eli speaks a word of rebuke against his sons but he does not act to put an end to their sin he's got authority over them he has authority over them in multiple ways we don't know exactly how old they were but he's their father not only that, but he is the high priest. They are priests under him. He's also the highest ranking judge in Israel at this point in history. Remember we saw last week he sat on the throne outside the tabernacle. He's got authority over them in multiple ways, but he fails to use his authority to stop their great evil, to stop their sinning. I think you can say that Eli should have executed his sons. He should have executed his sons because they're committing what are definitely capital crimes, idolatry and adultery. These are capital crimes under the law of Moses. Eli should have executed them. But because he won't, God will. Eli won't put them to death, so God will put them to death. Because Eli lets them go on in their sin, God will bring judgment. In fact, it's really interesting here, one of Eli's sons, we don't get the names right away, but we get them later in the story. One of Eli's sons is named Phineas, and he's committing 
adultery, which is really interesting. There was another Levite earlier in Israel's history named Phineas. And you can read the story if you go back to Numbers chapter 25. That Phineas did not commit sexual immorality when so many men in Israel did. Instead, he brought judgment against sexual immorality in Israel. And he was rewarded for his faithfulness. Go read the story of Phineas back in Numbers 25. You'll see this. The Phineas here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, he's really the the anti-Phineas. He's really the opposite of his namesake. He does the opposite of what the Phineas earlier in Israel's history did. So again, Eli sees all this. He hears about it, but he won't act to stop it because he won't act to stop it. God will. We see here God's holiness, God's utter hatred of sin, particularly the sense of idolatry and adultery. Well, then you have a man of God who comes. He's an unnamed prophet. He comes to rebuke Eli and to prophesy his doom, the doom that will come upon his household. He begins by reminding Eli of all that the Lord has done for him. He's going to list all the the great blessings and gifts that God has given to Eli and his family going back to Aaron. Verse 27, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father? Of course, that's Aaron. When they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house. In other words, this unnamed man of God is saying to Eli, look, your ancestors were slaves in Pharaoh's house. Your tribe was exalted to be priests, to be servants in God's house, to minister before the living God in the tabernacle. What a great privilege. He goes on, verse 28, did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifice on my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? Did I not give you the offerings of Israel and the altar fire? Here the prophet again is describing the tribe of Levi. Eli and his sons, they're they're Levites. Of course, Eli is the, the high priest at this time. This is describing the tribe of Levi and all the privileges God bestowed on the tribe of Levi as the priestly Tribe Again, it's a catalog of all the ways that God has blessed Eli's family as descendants of Aaron. And so then verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place? God says to Eli, I have blessed you abundantly and all you do is kick me in the face. I've given you these gifts and all you do is kick at me. He asks Eli, why do you honor your sons more than me? See, Eli's failure to deal with the sins of his sons, Eli's soft rebuke of his sons, his his failure to bring judgment against his sons, it shows really he's idolized family ties. He's put family above faithfulness. Eli's sons, by stealing food that belongs to God, they've really put themselves in the place of God. That's what Eli's sons have done. But Eli puts his sons in God's place as well by refusing to bring judgment against them. I love the way Ralph Davis describes this in his commentary, what's going on here, uh, putting this really in modern terms we can understand and relate to what's going on with Eli. It's what Ralph Davis says. He says, this prophecy against Eli emphasizes that you can end up in grave sin by thinking it's very important to be nice to people. How easy it is to practice a gutless compassion 
that never wants to offend anyone, that equates niceness with love, and thereby ignores God's law and essentially despises his holiness. We do not necessarily seek God's honor when we spare human feelings. Eli put his sons above God. It was a, you could say it's a kind of compassion, but it's a, it's a false compassion. He's, he's being nice rather than loving because if he was truly loving, he would confront his sins, his sons in their sins, and he would discipline them. The prophet goes on to ask, why do you fatten yourselves with the best of all the offerings? And literally, we find out later on, Eli has literally fattened himself on these offerings. This really echoes Hannah's song earlier in the chapter. Hannah, in her song, prays for judgment to fall. She says in her song, those who are full, those who have gorged themselves, will beg for bread. Well, that's Eli and his sons. They have been gorging themselves. They've been fattening themselves on stolen offerings. But really, what have they been doing? They've just been fattening themselves for the slaughter that's about to happen. Hannah's prayer will be answered. Actually, in verse 36, this same prophet says, the descendants of Eli will beg for a morsel of bread. Those who stole food will starve. Judgment is coming, reversal is coming. In verses 30 to 34, this man of God, this prophet, spells out further how God will bring judgment against Eli and his sons. Indeed, Eli's whole house will be judged. See, Eli's been this indulgent and irresponsible father. God's going to hold him accountable. He's been this indulgent and irresponsible judge and high priest. God's going to hold him accountable. Those who are in authority will be held to account. God will see to it. They have despised the Lord, so the Lord will despise them. God will cut off their house. Because they have defiled God's house, God will destroy their house. The prophet says there will never be another man to live to old age in Eli's house. And actually, if you look at the rest of the book, that comes to pass. Here in Samuel, it comes to pass. And in 1 Kings, finally the house of Aaron is removed all together. Another priesthood takes the place of the Aaronic priesthood. And when you get to 1 Kings, you see that. So this judgment does indeed come to pass. The prophet says the Lord will allow an enemy into his dwelling. This might refer to the Philistines capturing the Ark of the Covenant uh, a couple chapters later, because that's really the end of the tabernacle. God allows his house to fall into disrepair. He allows his house to be defiled as a judgment on Israel. However, this is understood. It's further judgment because of the sins of Eli and his sons. Finally, this prophet says that Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day. And you don't have to read a whole lot further to see that. That's going to happen in chapter what is the message of the prophet to Eli and to his sons? It's simple. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. <clears throat> Hannah said in her song that God is the judge. He is the one who weighs our deeds. And he is weighing the deeds of Eli, of Hophni, and Phinehas. He is weighing their deeds and finding them lacking. And so judgment will come. But note this too. Mixed in with this prophecy of judgment on Eli's house, there is also a promise of salvation, of a new house, a new priest, uh, a new dwelling for God. 
there is this promise of salvation described in verse 35. God says through the prophet, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Now in the immediate context, it might seem this is Samuel, and in fact I think it is. We'll, we'll see more later that there's, there's actually more to this prophecy than just what Samuel goes on to do. But who is the faithful priest? Well, initially, it should be understood as Samuel. And that's really clear in 1 Samuel chapter 2 because throughout this part of the book, Samuel is continually being contrasted with Hophni and Phinehas. Throughout this chapter, there are lengthy descriptions of the wickedness of Hophni and Phinehas interspersed with little snippets that show us Samuel doing right. They're growing in wickedness. Samuel's growing in faithfulness. It's the story of their wickedness, but interlaced with that are these little snippets that show us that Samuel is being faithful. It's as if we're being told the story of the wickedness of Hophni and Phinehas, and the writer keeps interrupting himself to give us these descriptions of Samuel's faithfulness. This really starts back in chapter 1, verse 28. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 28, Samuel is left at the Lord's house as a, as a young child, but it says he worshipped God there. And the very next thing we have, forget the chapter break, the very next thing we have after being told that Samuel worshipped God, we have Hannah's song, Hannah's prayer. And so my guess is Hannah taught Samuel her song, her prayer, and Samuel, when it says Samuel worshipped the Lord, how did he worship the Lord? He used the words of Hannah's song to worship the Lord. Samuel prayed the prayer that Hannah, his mother, taught him. He sang her song as a way of worshiping the Lord. So you've got that in 128. Then skip ahead to chapter 2 verse 11. It tells us that Samuel again ministered to the Lord before Eli. Uh, we can say unlike Eli's sons, uh, Samuel ministers faithfully in the Lord's presence. And then immediately from that, so having been told that Samuel ministers faithfully before the Lord, immediately it launches into the description of the evil of Hophni and Phinehas that we've already looked at. So it's a very clear contrast. Then in verses 18 to 21, again, the writer interrupts himself to tell us about Samuel and how Samuel would minister faithfully before the Lord. And now we're told that he would do so wearing a priestly ephod. This priestly garment that his mother would make for him every year when they made their, their, their journey to Shiloh, to the tabernacle for worship. His mother would bring something she had made, a linen ephod, a, a priestly garment for him to wear. So obviously making one a little bit bigger that he could grow into over the course of the next year. So Samuel's a little priest, but he's a faithful priest. He's a miniature priest, but he's ministering faithfully before the Lord. And then, of course, after we have that description of Samuel, in verse 22, it goes right back to describing the evil ways of Hophni and Phinehas. But then you've got another interruption in verse 26. Verse 26 interrupts that again to paint this contrasting picture of Samuel. As they grow in wickedness, Samuel grows in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. And then in verse 27, of course, it goes right back to Eli and his sins and his son's sins and the judgment that's going to come upon them. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, it once again shifts back to Samuel and it tells us he's worshiping the Lord truly and faithfully. Samuel is, at this point in history, at this moment in history, Samuel is the faithful priest in the house 
of God. Eli's mentioned in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 3. He's mentioned there, but he's not called a priest anymore as he was earlier because his priesthood is effectively over. The faithful priest Samuel is taking the place of Eli and his sons. And of course, that's just what we're going to find later on in this book. Samuel does function as a priest on behalf of the whole nation. We'll find Samuel later in this book in chapter 7 and 10 and 16. Samuel offers sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. But it's not just a contrast between Hannah's son as a faithful priest and Eli's sons as wicked priests. There's a contrast there for sure. But it's really a contrast between two households. You could say a contrast between two seed lines. Even as we learn that God will tear down Eli's house, we see him building up Hannah's house. In fact, there's that little detail there in verse 21 that, uh, yes, Hannah had given birth to Samuel. She had been barren for so long, she gives birth to Samuel. But the once Baron Hannah is visited by the Lord several more times. She ends up having several more children, several more sons and daughters after Samuel. God is building her household even as he is about to tear down the household of Eli. And so I think really what you have here, really what this is, is a story about the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. It's two seed lines and it's two households that come from them. The battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent really, of course, goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and the promise that God made there that the seed of the woman would do battle with the seed of the serpent and crush the serpent's head. That word seed is kind of tricky because it can be singular, focused on one man who is the seed, or it can be collective, focused on a group or a family that is the collective Seed, a, a group or family of people can be described as a seed as well. All of history can be understood as the war between the collective seed of the woman and the collective seed of the serpent. Hannah becomes a conqueror by giving birth to multiple seed, to several faithful covenant children. Hannah becomes a conqueror in this battle by the children she bears, by the faithful children she raises up. Now that's not the only way that she becomes a conqueror. That's not the only way she fights. For example, we've seen already her song of praise. That's also a weapon of her warfare against the serpent. She plays a huge role, a key role in the battle. Okay. But one of the key ways that she fights this battle, one of the key ways she plays her part in crushing the head of the seed of the serpent is by giving birth to faithful seed, raising up a new generation of faithful covenant warriors, Samuel and his siblings. She is one of the great warrior women of old. She is a model of feminine glory and feminine strength. Hannah, you could say, really gives us a very different vision of womanhood than the one our modern culture provides. It's one that's crucial to the church's success and her mission, this vision of womanhood that Hannah gives us. Women grow the kingdom. And one of the central ways they grow the kingdom is by being made fruitful. It's by multiplying. It's by raising up a new generation of kingdom 
warriors. It's by raising up the seed of the woman. Covenant children. Now, what do we take away from this passage? What, 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 is, what is, you know, this is a 3,000 year old story. What could it possibly do for us today? Well, go back to what I started with. I want to I frame this for you. This is a Christological story in every way. This story points us to Jesus. So what does it do 3,000 years later? It points us to Jesus as our Savior. In fact, it's really interesting the way it points us to Jesus. Hannah's song ends describing God's promised king, God's Messiah. Hannah's song ends by proclaiming this king that God will sing. She sang about how God would give his king strength, how God would exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah. Horn, of course, is a symbol for strength. What does Hannah's song tell us? The king is coming. That is the theme of her song, her prayer. The king is coming. The passage ends, this chapter ends with an unnamed man of God, a prophet, describing a coming priest. God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do all that is according, all, who shall do according to all that is in my heart and my mind, and I shall build him a house. That is to say, the priest, the promised priest, is coming. A great high priest is coming. A priest who can reconcile us to God. A priest who can atone for our sins. These are all themes that are mentioned in the chapter. I mean, Eli himself even asks, who will intercede if a man sins against God? Well, this unnamed prophet says, a priest is coming. He's going to do this. He's going to intercede on your behalf. It's obvious when Hannah sings of a king, in the context of Samuel, she means David, that's the Lord's horn, the Lord's anointed, the one he raises up. But it's also obvious that she's singing about someone much greater than David, someone beyond David. David does some of the things that she sings about, some of the things that she says the king will do, but not all of them. Who's it ultimately pointing to? Well, it's got to be Jesus. Jesus is the one who will be exalted as ruler over all. He is God's promised king. He is God's anointed one. He is the one who will bring about all of these reversals, these really restorations that Hannah sang about. And really, it's the same with the priestly figure. We can ask the question, when the priest says that God will, when the prophet says God will raise up a faithful priest, who is he talking about? Well, could it be Samuel? Well, yes, I've already pointed that out. In the immediate context, with the contrast between Samuel and Hophni and Phinehas, obviously Samuel is the faithful priest. But Samuel does not do everything prophesied here of the priest who is to come. Some might ask, well, then could it be Zadok? The Zadokite priesthood, that's the priestly family that David later establishes to replace Eli's family. Well, again, the answer is yes, partially, Partially, this is pointing ahead to Zadok, the Zadokite priests, but not entirely. Because again, the house of Zadok does not accomplish everything described here. And so it cannot ultimately be about the Zadokites. The Zadokite priests cannot reconcile the people to God when they have sinned against God. And that's what they need, is a priest who can bring about that kind of reconciliation. Who is this about? Obviously, ultimately, it's a promise of Jesus. And if you want to see this in the New Testament, just go to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to show us that Jesus is our great high priest. He's the great high priest of the new covenant. He is the great high priest who has been promised to us, who has now come. In the book of Hebrews, we find that the old covenant priesthood was flawed and temporary, but Jesus belongs to an eternal and perfect priesthood. 
His is a superior priesthood with a superior ministry. He is a great high priest who meets all our needs, who provides fully for our salvation, who has made a way for us into the very presence of God so we can enter into the heavenly sanctuary. He ever lives to make intercession for us. The old covenant priests never finished the work of offering sacrifice because none of their sacrifices were effective. They never got to take their seats in the very presence of God. Jesus has made effective atonement for our sins, covering our sins. He is our advocate and mediator. He has taken his seat at the right hand of God and now intercedes on our behalf. Hebrews shows us how Jesus fulfills this priestly promise. And so you take what Hannah says about the king coming, and you take what this unnamed prophet says about the priest coming, and you put it together, what do you have? Jesus is the promised king and priest. He is the king and priest prophesied in 1 Samuel chapter 2. That's what this is about. It's pointing us to Jesus, the king we need, the priest we need. But there are other lessons here, and I think it would be Really unfortunate if we missed other things this passage can teach us. Yes, pointing us to Christ is the central function of all the scriptures. And that frames everything else, that undergirds everything else. It's Christ's grace, it's Christ's love, it's Christ's forgiveness. It's Christ as priest, it's Christ as king. It's his rule, his reign, his intercession, his advocacy, him as mediator. It's all of that there, yes. It, it, it points us to Jesus you know, we, we saw at the beginning how all of Scripture is about Jesus. But think about this. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that all Scripture is useful. All Scripture is functional. He says all Scripture is useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Paul says Scripture equips us for every good work. See, precisely because Scripture is Christological, it is also practical. Precisely because scripture is Christological, it is also functional. The practical flows out of the Christological, to be sure, just like works flow out of faith. But there, we have to see this connection. It points us to Christ, but because it points us to Christ, it shows us how Christ wants us to live in every aspect of our lives. With this story in 1 Samuel, one of the most practical things we can get out of this passage is what we can learn here about faithful parenting, about the covenant household, about how to be a father, how to be a mother, and how to raise up covenant children, how to raise up godly seed. God says that's his purpose in Malachi. He says that's his purpose in joining husband and wife together, a believing husband and a believing wife. That's the purpose is to raise up godly seed. And so let me ask you a question. What kind of children do you want to raise? What do you want most for your children? What kind of children do you want to raise up? Do you want to raise the seed of the serpent like Eli? Or do you want to raise up the seed of the woman like Hannah? What kind of children do we want raised in our church? What kind of children do we want to launch out of this congregation? in the years to come. Now I'll tell you, it's true, there is not always a one-to-one -one correspondence between parental obedience and the faithfulness of their children. Life's a little more complex than that, we probably all understand that, but it is also true that there is definitely some kind of connection between parental obedience and the faithfulness 
of children. In general, we expect faithful Christian parenting to produce faithful Christian children. In parenting, as much as in any other area of life, we reap what we sow. That's the general rule. Proverbs, of course, these are Proverbs, not promises, but Proverbs calls attention to this, this connection between parental obedience or parental disobedience and the results in the lives of the children. Listen to a few examples of this from Proverbs 29. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Well, why would the son's disobedience bring shame to his mother? How can one person's sin bring shame to another person? Well, the point is the mother could have done something about it. And had the mother done something about it, the results would have been different. Consider this from Proverbs 28. Whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Okay, shame is brought on the father. Why? Because he didn't intervene and train the way he should have, and so his son has gone astray. This is Proverbs 10. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. See, disobedient children often bring shame to their parents because their parents, because the, the, the children's disobedience is the result of parental failure or neglect in some kind of way. And this is why when we teach on parenting and we do parenting seminars, I always encourage you parents with really young kids to deal with even minor misbehavior when your kids are little, nip that sin in the bud before it can grow into something much more destructive. Deal with it early in your children's lives because that's much easier than dealing with it late. Children are far less likely to stray into more serious offenses if the minor offenses are dealt with when they're young. So what we have in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we really have two case studies of how to do it right and how to do it wrong. Eli does it wrong. As a father, he sets a terrible example for his sons. He is a greedy and gluttonous man. Uh, he's, he's not even really that involved with his sons, so he just has to hear about their sin. He doesn't know about it firsthand for himself. He's fallen into sin himself. His sons have magnified these sins in the next generation, and it leads to familial destruction. His line, his house, is going to be cut off. Eli is a failed father. He saw the sins of his sons. He knew about the sins of his sons, but he did not act to discipline them. He did not put an end to it. Eli's sons had every spiritual advantage as covenant members, as, as, as priests. They had every spiritual advantage, every covenantal privilege was granted to them, but it was all wasted on them because they were not trained to know and obey the Lord. They were not trained in righteousness. That's Eli, he fails. But then look at Hannah, and you have an example of a mother who succeeds, a faithful mother. She shows us the power of a mother's love, the power of a mother's prayers. She shows us the power of godly parenting. I think Elkanah was probably a godly father as well, but the spotlight's really on Hannah. She shows us how faithful, prayerful, purpose, purposeful parenting can yield results and can yield results even when living in a dark time and a corrupt culture. Hannah doesn't just blame the culture and say, well, it's really, you know, it's really terrible out there. The whole nation's in crisis, so what can I possibly do? No, she does something. 
Like I already said, my guess is that Hannah taught Samuel her song. And that song guided Samuel into faithfulness. That song was his north star. So as he was around people like Hophni and Phinehas, he knew how to navigate all of that because he had been trained in this song of worship. I'm sure there was more to the training than that, but that's at the heart of it. Hannah reinforced her son's covenantal identity from his earliest age. Think about ways she did this. She made him a linen ephod, a linen ephod for Samuel to wear, and she would bring a new one every year. She treated her son as a priest, even from his earliest days. She strengthened his sense of calling, that God had really put a call on his life. She spurred him to growth in his identity as, uh, as a priest and as a Nazarite by bringing him a new priestly garment every year that he could grow into in the days to come. I mean, if you're a parent, that's how you've got to think about it. Your children are miniature priests. Help them to grow into that vocation. They are Christian children. Help them to grow into that identity. Reinforce that identity constantly. Hannah dedicated her son to God to be a Nazarite, to be a holy warrior. Your children, like Psalm 127 says, your children are arrows in the quiver. Train them for war. Train them for the battle. They are soldiers in God's army. Hannah is the model mother. In contrast to Eli, she pictures faithful mothering. She is a model of covenant parenting. All those things she did can be translated into new covenant categories. If you have children in your home, what should you do? Continually consecrate them to the Lord. Pray diligently for your children like Hannah, pouring yourself out in, in love and prayer and service to teach and train your children. Teach your children psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There is nothing more important to your child's spiritual development than the musical culture of the home. And so train your children to sing God's war songs the way Hannah did with Samuel. Teach your children they are members of God's royal priesthood. Teach your children they are priests. They are members of God's people called to offer sacrificial worship. Cultivate loyalty to God in their lives. Take them to God's tabernacle, to the church regularly so worship becomes central to their lives so they are trained in the most basic practices that are right at the heart and core of the Christian life. Be like Hannah. That's what I would say to you. And don't be like Eli. Don't be like Eli. Eli is a warning to Christian parents everywhere in every generation. He shows us what not to do unless you want to send your kids straight to hell. Okay, if you want to send your kids straight to hell, then be like Eli. Okay? But I would say no Christian parents have children thinking they're going to populate hell. The goal is to raise your children up to be citizens of the kingdom of God. So don't be like Eli. Set a faithful example of integrity and holiness and righteousness before your children. Especially show your children by example how to offer sacrificial worship to the Lord. Discipline your children. Don't just use words of rebuke the way Eli did. Use the rod the way Proverbs talks about. Use the rod. It's a tool of parental transformation in your children's life when used in gentleness and love. It takes effect. Understand and remember, God works through families. God works through faithful mothers. And God works through faithful fathers to build his own house, to build his kingdom. If you're a Christian parent, if you've got kids in the home, do everything in your power to guide your children towards the Lord. 
There is nothing more important than that. There is no task more important in life than that. Trust in God. Rest in God's promises. God's promise, I will be a God to you and to your children. Make that the foundation of everything else you do as a parent. Let us together raise up a generation of kingdom warriors. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.